Welcome to the CrocCast, a podcast for peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the CrocCast. I'm Lisa Shirk, and the Richard G. Starman Senior Professor of the Practice in Peace Studies at the Croc Institute, part of the University of Notre Dame's Keough School of Global Affairs. I'm also joined for this conversation by my Keough School colleague, Ray Offenheiser, the director of the Pulte Institute for Global Development. In today's episode, we're looking forward to a conversation with former Afghan Minister of Interior Affairs, Mr. Weiss Barmak. Mr. Barmak has served in multiple cabinet level roles, including Minister of Rural Rehabilitation and Development and Minister of Disaster Management and Humanitarian Affairs in Afghanistan. Welcome, Mr. Barmak. Thank you, Lisa. I'm pleased to be with you. We are going to ask Mr. Barmak about what might be done to address the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. We'll talk about the recent announcement from the Taliban preventing girls from going to school and how this impacts women's rights and deprives the country of women's contributions. We'll explore both short-term and long-term options to support sustainable food security and rights for girls and women to education and participation in supporting their families and their country. Thank you so much again for joining us. We'll have a three-part conversation. In this first part, we'll talk about the humanitarian crisis. Since the U.S. withdrawal and the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August 2021, the country has endured a deepening and increasingly deadly humanitarian crisis. According to Human Rights Watch, acute malnutrition is spiking across the country and 95% of households have been experiencing insufficient food consumption and food insecurity. At least 55% of the population is expected to be in crisis or emergency levels of food insecurity through March 2022, according to the United Nations. Humanitarian organizations have repeatedly issued warnings about the sheer scale of the crisis and how much worse it can get. Afghan children are starving to death nearly every day. Mr. Barmak, please give us an overview of the situation in the country. Is the humanitarian situation, particularly food security, getting any better now that the winter is nearly over or will it stay the same or get worse? What is your assessment? Thank you, Lisa, for having me for this conversation. Um, I'm really pleased to be with you and contribute to the to the discussion or to the conversation we are having on Afghanistan. You asked me about food security situation in the country, as you also narrated. Unfortunately, the country is really suffering, and it's been suffering from food insecurity not only today, but I think uh, for the last, even effectively speaking, for the last 15 years, let's uh, put five to four years aside because, you know, we were in the process of building state institutions uh, right you know, in the beginning between 2001, 2002, and 2005. But from that time on, Afghanistan has, unfortunately, has experienced, I think probably, if I correctly remember, five times of drought, severe drought, which has had a huge impact on food security in the country. What it means, it means that you know, Afghanistan has been producing between 3.5, 3.8 million tons of let's say cereals in the country together, like, you know, every types of food you are talking about. So that hasn't been sufficient or adequate to address. You mentioned about malnutrition. You also mentioned about the basic food needs of the Afghan people. So what's happened in the last, uh, let's say, 20 years, Afghanistan has always imported that amount of 
you know insufficiency so for the deficit if i say in the in the right way so the deficit has always been there every year according to the world bank according to fao according to the ministry of agriculture so we've always imported the remaining or addressed the remaining deficit by importing for example wheat flour either from pakistan and recently of course we have been very much dependent on central asian republics especially kazakhstan so it doesn't mean that only you know kazakhstan but of course pakistan iran even ukraine and other central asian republics uh, for the last 15 16 years so that is the kind of you know the, the general picture uh, in terms of food security now so what's happening now effectively for the last 16 years you know fao as a un agency i'm just you know criticizing the un positively i'm not criticizing the un in a negative way so the un as a whole has been mandated to basically provide either technical assistance or design complementary programs to basically address development needs and as well as some of the technical issues in terms of systems building in terms of you know equipping the you know the state institutions in Afghanistan to enable them to become self-reliant and become self-sufficient or self or effective institutions to address you know the needs based on the mandates that every state institution has had in Afghanistan but unfortunately you know FAO uh, has not been able to deliver on that one WFE of course you know it has been trying its best to fill in the gap that has always remained as a food insecurity or food uh, food security deficit in the country but it's not been sufficient i mean did we not experience uh, malnutrition with support from unicef or let's say wfp or fao but i think uh, we did have their support their support programs or complementary programs in cooperation and collaboration with different uh, afghan government institutions but unfortunately that has not been again you know sufficient enough to address some of the you know structural issues that we've had with these institutions and making sure that afghanistan gradually and slowly and gradually becomes i would say self sustainable in terms of capacity in terms of technical knowledge and in terms of systems that would allow the government of afghanistan or afghanistan to help uh, its farmers to produce more of course you know we have also uh, an issue of how much arable land we have in, across the country that's also that has been an issue so afghanistan is a mountainous country so how much in terms of percentage what percentage of our land is actually arable so in that terms according to the world bank i think it's between 12 to 13% of our of the whole land is arable that's another picture the broad picture so now how much the government of afghanistan together with international partners have been able to address the issue of arability and the issue of irrigation if you do not have an, uh, proper irrigation systems in place whether it is very locally i would say built or let's say some mega schemes uh, irrigation schemes in the country then we also had we've had issues uh, what we call the rights of water with our neighboring countries like you know pakistan the ups and downs uh, you know streams and then we have we have had issues with central asian republics then with iran that has also been an issue which have actually prevented donors to put money into a big irrigation schemes but at the same time it has also prevented the afghan government to address that kind of you know that aspect of making you know sure that afghanistan is food secure so i think the issue is you know it's it's a multiple aspects or multiple problem or a problem with multiple dimensions on one side you have the issue of the right of uh, access to water 
between neighbors and Afghanistan, upstream, downstream. The other issue, uh, I would also say that, you know, unfortunately, you know, the issue of capacity within the Afghan government and also the issue of technical capacity and technical knowledge of enabling institutions to basically undertake systematically some of these uh, activities so that Afghanistan had to slowly and gradually move out of this, I would say, vicious circle of uh, food insecurity that we have been talking about for years now. And then uh, we also had, of course, you know, the issue of uh, aid. Afghanistan was always dependent on, on international aid and also especially, I would say, I mean, international aid is, is the right word to use. In some ways, aid uh, did not allow Afghan government institutions to use that money for mega for building mega irrigation projects. So we had uh, an, a number of programs, for example, uh, with the Ministry of Agriculture, supported by USAID, supported by European Union, supported by the World Bank, including National Solidarity Program, which focused a lot on small and medium-sized irrigation schemes across the country. And I think, uh, uh, do uh, I always had uh, an issue with the World Bank in terms of uh, their assessment and their evaluation outcomes, on whether NSP you know, had any impact on, on food security in rural Afghanistan. Yes, it had, because uh, we built, we invested a lot in small and medium-sized irrigation schemes, which contributed in turn to food security and improving food security across the country. So that is the kind of uh, you know, big picture and come back to the, to the current situation. So I think, uh, unfortunately, the current situation is, is worse and it's getting worse. If I think the political issue and the political situation Afghanistan is in now is not addressed, involving both Taliban and also the international community and unfortunately the neighbors around us. So Nasser, maybe just a quick follow-up on the, situ- the humanitarian situation. Maybe it'd be interesting to know maybe just a, on a more nuanced level, for example, are the commercial supply chains coming in from outside of Afghanistan, are they functioning? Or some of the crisis in the banking system that we've heard about, is that affecting you know, the ability of the country to kind of actually engage in, in some degree of trade, cross-border trade at the present time? Or are we totally dependent on sort of, I suppose you might say, the World Food Program sourcing the sort of the excess supply? You know, right, the, the issue is with, with the government legitimacy. So, for example, you know, our neighbors on the north side, or even Pakistan, uh, I'm not referring now to Pakistan, at least, you know, park it for a while. But as long as, you know, our neighbors on the north side is concerned, or Iran, they're trying to deal with the Taliban. We are actually sandwiched between our neighbors' interests and the way they behave us, behave now Afghanistan, is because of their own fear. Because they fear that, you know, if they let Afghanistan as they, they let Afghanistan back in 1990s, but they know that the, the Taliban of 2000, now let's say 2022, is totally different from Taliban 2000, uh, 1996 or late 90s, because ideologically, I know they have grown and they have been transformed. They've become like, you know, more ideological and uh, they have now, they're following big ambitions then they also have capabilities now in hand. So capabilities that can threaten their security, their national security. So that's why they're just you know, trying to, to appease the Taliban. In terms of trading, I think uh, just recently I heard that uh, Uzbekistan has opened its border now for some kind of, I don't know, some kind of trade, but it's not uh, fully functional. Tajikistan is totally closed. 
I don't know if there, is, there has been any trade recently. I checked with some of my sources. They say no. The only trade now, I think uh, with some recent discussions and agreements with Pakistan, between Pakistan and Taliban, Taliban administration, I think some progress has been made to allow uh, cross-border trading uh, between Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Central Asian republics, especially Uzbekistan. So now Uzbekistan can receive some types of, you know, food or maybe, you know, I don't know, some commercial materials or commodities from Pakistan. And then uh, the same way for, uh, commodities will flow uh, through Afghanistan to Pakistan. So that is happening. The same from Iran. So Iran has also allowed now, you know, has opened up its its borders to for cross-border trading, especially uh, fuel is coming a lot from Iran and then different types of uh, food commodities as well. So yes, I mean, at least between Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's almost normalized. But I don't know, between Turkmenistan and uh, Uzbekistan, maybe it's very limited, as far as I know. So that's the situation. Yeah. And maybe just one other quick question. You know, the international NGOs, I know that Doctors Without Borders is pushing very hard to get the public to kind of be responsive to the humanitarian crisis. And I have a sense that they're in the country operating. It's hard to tell. And I'm hearing some other international NGOs are starting to kind of restart their programs, which might actually help the kind of the response in the short term as the state institutions kind of get reorganized and such. But are you hearing anything about the return of international NGOs and whether the Taliban's giving them space to operate? I think uh, most of the international NGOs that uh, operated in Afghanistan, even though you know we witnessed uh, the the collapse and uh, the disintegration of the whole republic system, I think most of the NGOs uh, remained in Afghanistan. You know, I know because I've been dealing with international uh, with the whole international community, uh, particularly with international NGOs, national NGOs. I still hear that there could be around uh, hundred plus international NGOs uh, operating across Afghanistan. Swedish committee is there, ACTIT is there, Action is it is there, so World Vision is there. Many of those uh, which operated in the past, they are still there. But at the same time, we should also understand that you know the only way through which uh, we can respond to the current humanitarian crisis and to the current humanitarian crisis, the generic word we can use, but it has a lot of other dimensions in terms of people's access to, let's say, to health services, to you know education, basic education, and to, to food and many other, I would say, life-saving activities. So the international community, including NGOs and the United Nations agencies, are the only entities which are actually responding to the current crisis. So otherwise, if we didn't have them, the Taliban administration, to be very honest and clear, so they do not have any development budget. They are not uh, taking care of any people's needs right now. And at the same time, when the international NGOs or uh, UN agencies, they try to intervene in particular, you know, let's say, I would say critical crisis in the in some parts of the country, then, you know, they, they want to influence the process of aid distribution, aid survey, the surveying, the listing, and uh, the aid distribution. The recent example that the, the NGOs faced was the whole province in central Afghanistan, one of the poorest, I would say, you know, or deprived uh, geography within the whole geography of Afghanistan. It has remained deprived and, and it's now it's suffering probably the most comparing to other parts of Afghanistan. So three, four NGOs, provincial managers were arrested by the Taliban, they were put in jail, and then they were, they were in search of other aid workers uh, within the province. Nimruz uh, Faced, uh, the same situation. The governors of these uh, two provinces, they just stopped uh, the activities of NGOs. And I've been following uh, for the last two, three days if they have been able to resume 
but they haven't been able to resume their activities. So this means that, you know, there are some, probably, you know, some hidden policies now being implemented to create more chaos and panic within Afghanistan. For example, the banning of of girls uh, from going to school was another harsh policy. They just brought up and then announced it. And now we are are facing another situation anyway. Well, just following on uh, that theme, and we can come back to this humanitarian crisis throughout this conversation, but... On March 22, the Taliban broke their promise to open girls' schools above the sixth grade, grade six. The UN Secretary General observes that the denial of education not only violates the equal rights of women and girls to education, it also jeopardizes the country's future in view of the tremendous contributions of Afghan women and girls. Can you help us understand why the Taliban may have made this decision despite its promises to allow girls' education? Lisa, thank you. Uh, you know, that decision has probably three aspects, I would say, three dimensions. Every decision you make, it should be either reasons-based, rules-based, or some logic-based, you know, or some, I would say, politics-based. Huh? So I think uh, what the, the way Taliban have made this decision is very much, uh, it's rooted actually in their understanding and their ideology and their worldview of their surroundings and what they should do and how they should govern, how they should run, you know, a country or a state. If you remember, I'm sure that you've been following the news. There was a big meeting of the Taliban senior leaders in Kandahar just three days prior to 22nd, I would say, March. So there, nobody knows what they discussed, the details of their of the outcomes of their meetings. But uh, what we heard through some reliable sources, they discussed, you know, the issue of international legitimacy. They discussed the issue of their domestic legitimacy and how uh, what they should do to basically achieve that. And I think there, as we know that the Taliban militarily, they are divided uh, politically and militarily, they are divided between three groups now. One group is now led by Mullah uh, Yaqub, who is the acting defense minister. The other group is led by Haqqani, who is the acting interior minister. And the other group, uh, which is more political, which is, I think, slightly open to some moderate policies, is led by Mullah Bradar, who is from Kandahar. So the problem is now, Mullah Yaqub is not a very hardliner. He's, he's an educated military officer. He was educated in Pakistan. And now he's the acting defense minister. He's young, uh, but at the same time, he's very emotional. And at the same time, so he's also open to some form of moderation. So the problem is when they met in Kandahar, they also had some of their hardliners from within the group who are actually running the political machinery or the, I would say the theoretical backup of Taliban movement. So those guys, when they discussed their issues, you know, with the international community, they thought that, you know, even they open up the schools to girls education, because when they did it for university level, you know, just recently before, I think probably early March, they opened up universities to girls. The reaction from international community, they expected was not you know, that high. So they thought, oh, they just took it for granted that, yes, they had made that commitment. Now they're meeting their commitments. So what? They didn't get a, I would say, a warm welcome that, you know, to basically uh, motivate everyone and make everybody so passionate about it. So when they they discussed the the schools issue in Kandahar, this is what I've heard. So some of those hardliners, then they said, oh, okay, if if we open up the schools for girls, okay, the international community would just say, okay, thank you so much, Taliban. But they didn't think that by doing that, so it would open up the space 
for political recognition because they thought this is not the only tool or the only condition that if they meet, then they would have that. So they know that, you know, because they have five demands from the international community right now. And I've listed here those five demands just for your, as a kind of provocative to, uh, food for deliberation. And all their uh, meetings with the international community, especially with Tom West and the rest of the members of the international they've met up until now, they've asked the international community to recognize them. So to give them political legitimacy, international legitimacy, they want their names to be out of the sanction list. So they want to be delisted by the National Security Council. They want to have access to Afghanistan assets, number three. Number four, they want international development aid to come to Afghanistan. And they want World Bank, Asian Development Bank, and you know all other embassies to come back to Afghanistan and start investing in mega projects. The fourth one, they have also demanded the international community not to support any political oppositions or any oppositions or military oppositions against them. So these are like, you know, five conditions they have put in front of the international community and return for moderation. If you relax your policies on these five areas, we would also respond. So you respond one, then we respond and return, we would also respond. So they are actually playing very carefully. And uh, so far, I think uh, the narrative they have created in international forums, they've tried to convince the international community, but they forget that, you know, the international community repeatedly have said to them in all those meetings that, look, you know, we judge you by your actions. The international community judge you by your actions, not by your statements or words. That time has gone. So I think, uh, yeah, so that kind of, you know, back and forth uh, discussions are going on. So the international community, I think to some degree, Mr. Armack has been suggesting that international aid to Afghanistan could be conditional on education for women and girls. Is So how, how should global organizations respond to the current situation and, and maybe what sort of conditions might they have? And does it, is a condition like conditioning aid on education for women and girls, is that a realistic option or, you know, does the international community need a kind of a broader set of conditions or requirements for the reinstatement of aid? I think uh, I would go for a broader one. It should be one of the eight principles, eight delivery principles to Afghanistan. Conditionality, not only for education sector or women's girls' access to education and women participation in different, let's say, societal activities, either it's political, social, economic, or whatever. If we put that as, a, as, a, as one of the principal conditions, because, you know, even the previous government, which was created by the West and by the international community, we were subject to certain conditions. Conditionalities. We had a big, let's say, you know, every year we had a framework, uh, you know, Afghanistan, let's say, development framework, Afghanistan national development strategy. You know, if the previous government was subject to some form of conditionality within a mutual or bilateral framework, if, for example, the international community want to engage or remain engaged with the Taliban on how to deliver aid money to Afghanistan. Now, the international community has not decided yet to use any public sector institutions or government institutions for the delivery of assistance to the Afghan people. So they have made a crystal clear policy position that they would use alternative mechanisms. Alternative mechanisms include United Nations agencies, international or some credible national NGOs in Afghanistan. I think that's it. So that will not change unless the issue of political legitimacy and international recognition or international legitimacy and as well as domestic legitimacy are addressed. Just maybe following quickly on the aid question. So on March 31st, the UN and UK governments are going to be co-hosting a high-level pledging event on supporting humanitarian response in Afghanistan. I wonder what your expectations are for that for that event and what you'd hope 
in a best case scenario might come out of that. There was some speculations uh, before the Taliban made uh, their own fate uh, a bit, I would say, you know, ambiguous and worse to the eyes of the international community by making that decision about girls' education uh, situation. So there were some speculations that they were they would be invited to that international conference in London, and that would be a kind of given stage for the Taliban to come even to the United Kingdom and have that platform to make some speeches and some statements like the way they did in Antalya, in Turkey. So I think my expectation from the upcoming conference is that, okay, the international community as a whole, they feel the need, they understand the need, they understand the depth of the crisis in my country. And that's why I really appreciate their moral decision that at least, you know, while we have the issue of Ukraine, which is clouding, I think, the everybody's eyes and everybody's ears and, and brains. But I think as far as the international community, they are coming together and they are, they are discussing still Afghanistan. So I really appreciate that. This is really a moral responsibility they feel towards a nation that's now totally in the depth of the crisis. On the Ukraine question, I mean, it's interesting that I think increasingly we're, we're hearing that the Ukraine crisis is going to put incredible pressure on the global food system and on the funding for the global food system. And I think there was a report this morning that the funding for the humanitarian crisis in Yemen is being cut by 50%. And hearing that, and you sort of wonder, well, what's the downstream effect, you know, for Afghanistan and other countries similarly affected by serious food security crisis yeah. situations, like as you presented. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that and how, you know, how we sort of have to think about these issues kind of in that global context. As you said, right, the, the global context is really worrying for everyone, uh, especially you know the crisis which is now happening in Europe now with with the Russians or the Ukrainians, which were actually providing, I think, the the high level of uh, you know food to different countries in the world. Unfortunately, you know both countries are now in crisis. Both countries are in war. Eh? As I said uh, earlier, Afghanistan was. Uh, I don't know, in terms of percentage, I cannot, maybe using my imagery theory, probably, you know, 60% dependency was on Kazakhstan, I think, recently, in the recent years on Kazakhstan food, um, especially uh, wheat flour. So if Kazakhstan remains stable, then we do not have, I don't know, I've recently, I've not checked the kind of climatical changes in Kazakhstan. If Kazakhstan, I would say, have had enough or sufficient uh, raining, I'm sure that snow and raining, it would have a huge impact on their production as well. So if they produce more, I'm sure that, you know, then Afghanistan would not be that much affected because we are within that strip, uh, regional strip. So, you know, we can still import uh, food from, from Kazakhstan. And to some extent, probably, you know, I would say we could rely on Pakistan and India as well, because uh, now I understand that Pakistan has allowed Indians to send uh, at least food, wheat flour uh, by land to Afghanistan. This year, we had also in Afghanistan, we had some good uh, level of uh, raining and also snowing. So I hope that Afghanistan could also produce some sufficient amount of food. Uh, let's say if we could uh, produce uh, 3.8 or 3.6 million tons of wheat flour, and also we have orchards, and then we have other fruits and uh, other types of you know vegetables uh, like potatoes, you know other you know basic needs. So I'm sure that you know we would survive given what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. Thanks so much. I'd like to turn our attention back to the National Solidarity Program and just this longer term vision of how Afghans regain that food sufficiency for themselves. So uh, Afghans don't need to look to the international community for help. During your time as Minister for Rural Rehabilitation and Development, 
development, you directed the National Solidarity Program, or NSP. As a peacebuilding professor, I think the NSP is one of the best examples in the world of a national program that combined peacebuilding and community-driven development. Afghanistan's population is overwhelmingly rural, and it gave communities decision-making authority to determine development priorities and control over small block grants of around 30,000, yeah. so that community volunteers could then buy materials and do the work themselves. So, Ray, I'm going to pass it back to you to ask that first question about community-driven development and its growing popularity. Yeah, so community-driven development and actually, you know, this whole idea of localization, kind of bringing the development process to the people and I suppose you might say giving them agency, I think, has is, is been growing among donors. In Afghanistan, um, religious leaders and local councils of tribal elders, jurgas, and shuras, yeah. as you know, have uh, historically performed the governance functions in the absence, ineffectiveness, or domination of the central government. And the World Bank, I think you were probably closely involved in this, conducted research on the NSP program with random control trials across some 500 villages, comparing the outcomes for those villages that received NSP funding with control villages that did not receive NSP funding. And, and the result was that the NSP had a positive effect on access to drinking water, electricity, acceptance of democratic processes, perceptions of economic well-being, and attitudes toward women. So I think the general perception was this was a really successful program and, and really kind of modeled what everybody would hope for in terms of local engagement and local empowerment and creation of agency. Given all the sort of history of a variety of different models that have been sort of, I suppose, tried in Afghanistan, how do you think that this donor-pooled NSP block grant model worked in comparison with other approaches and whether this might be something that we could be looked to for the future? Do you think there are any prospects at all in Afghanistan for some form of donor-pooled funds for development and or community-driven development models? that we might, in some sense, build on the NSP success story. Yeah. Well, thank you for raising uh, that question. I should say that, you know, I'm, I've been one of the proponents, I would say, of community-driven development in Afghanistan. I'm a community-driven development professional and at the same time, also a practitioner, I would say. So why I say this? Because as you said, and Liz also uh, pointed out, you know, localization, as you also pointed out, localization of development process actually gave ownership to the people and gave that agency you mentioned. Actually, this was one of the things I wanted to mention that, you know, by implementing National Solidarity Program in Afghanistan, the name is not an issue. The, the name is, was fantastic as well, National Solidarity Program. But within that scheme, we followed a number of I don't say, you know, any negative hidden agendas or expected outcomes. So it was clear. We brought development to the, you know, uh, the development planning, the development, you know, prioritization to the people. So we gave the space to people to rise and then discuss, talk about their development needs, their social needs, their social problems. And then through a social mobilization process, which included uh, different stages of capacity building, training, and different fields. So then they were enabled, they were empowered to represent themselves in the planning process and also in the implementation and monitoring of what they basically needed to address the development needs they had uh, within their own community. So we gave them agency, we gave them the space to discuss, to prioritize, and also we gave them the, we created a democratic space for them to, to basically practice their own rights. So, you know, with one or two objectives, NSP was created, but when it was implemented, honestly speaking, when 
people came to us and then we engaged with them as everyday posts in Afghanistan. So we realized that, oh, you know, NSP is not only making an impact on this particular sector or aspect of life or, you know, social sector, but, you know, it's it's making multiple impacts on communities' lives, on households' lives, on family lives. You know, it contributed to, to building peace. It contributed to, to basically improving security. Then it contributed to developing skills and knowledge of local people. You know, and then, of course, as, as you said, again, I mentioned this uh, agency. So that the process created agency for people. Now, after the fall of the republic uh, system in Afghanistan, it took us two, three months to deliberate on what would be the alternative mechanisms to use basically to address the current situation in the country. So the Taliban have taken over the country by military force. The international community had warned them not to do that. Now they've done it. So we are facing a reality on the ground and the international community decided not to channel any funds or any assistance through government institutions because they were controlled by the Taliban. So I advised the United Nations system, UNDP, because I was I was working with them uh, until October. So because the uh, UN actually asked me what to do. I said, you know, the only way to basically address some of the basic issues, the basic needs of the country. So let's go back to the World Bank and the national community and say that, you know, the UN and NGOs can become alternative aid delivery mechanisms in Afghanistan. There is no other way. So I advised, you know, UNDP country director, I said, you know, you can take on the social and economic development side. Let's give uh, health and uh, education to UNICEF, for example. So basically, you know, uh, create de facto mechanisms. Okay, if there is no military of rural development now functioning, uh, no agriculture ministry functioning, no education ministry functioning. So I was just saying that, you know, when the government, you know, was not an option through which uh, aid or international aid uh, should be channeled. So then we should use uh, United Nations agencies, NGOs, for as alternative mechanisms for delivery of assistance. Though we, I knew and we all knew that these agencies had also lost considerably their capacities. Most of African citizens uh, who were managing projects and managing programs that I knew when I was there, so they had also left the country. But uh, we still have some operational and technical capacity within the UN, and we also had uh, some Afghan-educated young, educated people, stuff of the government that the Taliban laid them off. If you are aware, up until now, the Taliban have laid off most of the government employees which were serving as directors at the director level, deputy director level, what we call in the Afghan government system, you know, we have a grade system. So it's actually, it starts from grade one, two, three, up to three. So they're all now, uh, they have been replaced by the Taliban officials. But beyond that, of course, it's a, a more political positions like, you know, deputy minister, minister, and also beyond that. This is now the current situation. So I still believe that, you know, uh, until the time, the political issue with the Taliban is sorted out nationally and internationally. So the UN, uh, UN agencies, do I, I have my own reservations about their current capacities and as well as NGOs. I understand now the, the UNDP has brought, uh, I don't know, about 20, 25 people from what they call International Crisis Management Bureau. They think uh, they are people with a lot of crisis management expertise, but 
on the ground, we haven't seen that, you know, what UNDP has actually addressed uh, that to be so tangible and catching, eye-catching for everybody. So that's where UNICEF is very efficient. I would say this is one of the UN agencies I would rate the highest in terms of its professional approach, professional behavior systems. But I know they're also, they also have their limits, uh, which is very much, uh, I think, uh, affected by, by the bureaucracy uh, generally. So this is where we are now in terms of uh, NGOs capacity, UN capacity, and how we can address, I think, uh, the current crisis. So I also advised and recommended using community development councils as the basic delivery services mechanisms at the community level, because we tested community development councils uh, during uh, the COVID-19 crisis. The World Bank approved, I think, about more than 100 million US dollars. So I was actually the lead uh, for monitoring that process from behind the scene. And then I tested as a senior person, as a legacy we le I left uh, behind. And then we tested uh, during 2020 and 2020. 21. So it worked very well in terms of transparency, accountability, effectiveness, and also, you know, with the speed with which people should have received, you know, the, the, the assistance. So I have recommended using CDCs by UN agencies, by international NGOs throughout this crisis period until, you know, we have a clear picture on the political situation. So yes. All right. Well, we may need to have you back and talk further on this. So thank you so much for your time today, Mr. Barmok and Ray Offenheiser. Thank you for joining this conversation and asking such great questions. I'd like to close today by thanking the audience for joining us. And thank you to the CrocCast producers for producing this episode, which was part of the Afghanistan Peace and Development Research Program, a collaborative effort at the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. For more information about our Afghanistan program, please visit www.croc.nd.edu slash Afghanistan. Thank you. You've been listening to the CrocCast, peace studies conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Croc Institute for International Peace Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs. You can find all episodes of the CrocCast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, and online at croc.nd.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people find our show. For more updates, stories, and videos from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Thanks for listening.